Welcome to the Ivy Podcast. We're just two aunties sharing our experience through the lens of one Blackfoot woman and one Anishinaabe woman. And we are Indigenous Vision, an educational nonprofit based in Montana and Arizona. We are 100% Indigenous led, and this is our podcast. Check us out at indigenousvision.org to learn more about our work, make a donation, or play back any of our radio shows and this episode. Hello and welcome to the Indigenous Vision Podcast. I do believe this is the first episode of 2023. Yeah, it is. And uh, this is episode 79. My name is Melissa Spence, and I am here with our executive director, Suta Calling Last, who has a very special guest to introduce. Hello. Good morning, ladies. Good morning, Melissa. Good morning. I'm here with Selena Gray, and I have known Selena now for a little over a year. We've been Facebook friends for a while, but she's awesome. She's a badass in science. Okay. Let me get more professional than that. Okay. (laughs) She is an intern um, between indigenous vision and working dogs for conservation. And she's helping the dog and otter poop scat. She spent the summer doing field work with us and has been training with working dogs over the past few months and is going to help me start my training there too, to be dog handler and trainer. And she has recently agreed to help me get my stuff together here at Indigenous Vision <laughs> as an executive assistant and, and helping do all of the tasks that I help have to do for all of our projects. Selena, do you want to share a little bit more about yourself, your background, your education, uh, where you've worked before? Because it's all, I mean, we've talked for hours and hours about it, but it's all... I like to hear it. Yeah. Because it's awesome. Okay. Well, I will start by traditional greeting, I guess. Oki Nitsitapi, Nidaniko, Nato Yipoka, Amskapi Pikaniaki, and Meiti. Hello, everybody. I am Nato Yipoka, which translates um, in Blackfoot to Sacred Child. Selena Gray, I am Blackfoot and Meiti, Chippewa Cree. And I am a mother of four. I'm a graduate student at the University of Montana currently in the wildlife biology program, um, studying human dimensions. Food sovereignty is my passion. um, And that's where I infuse wildlife science with traditional ecological knowledge and practices. And that's led me to this internship with Working Dogs for Conservation and Indigenous Vision. I have totally been a fangirl of suttas for probably longer than a year now. I don't even know. But yeah, as a you know younger Blackfoot woman looking up to women of science and women of color doing science and just all the things that are possible in studying the environment around us and practicing our cultural ways. That's, that's me right now. Um, and it's a little bit of a like eye-opening experience that you just keep saying yes to those opportunities that come up. And then here you are, you know, with a, a young family of your own doing what you love on the land. And I'm excited to be able to help you and give back a little to the community in that way. So that's me. <laughs> uh, she's going to help keep us all alive <laughs> not no too much pressure yeah but we joked we joked the first time she ever came out with the dogs uh and we were walking along the river I'm like 
I need a replacement. That's already Selena. So we already <laughs> joked that she's the next uh, ED of IV. Um, because I want to move to the board and just focus on fundraising, which uh, if I have time to do that, I'm really good at finding the money and securing the money. And um, But when I'm running the programs and doing the science, it's just, it gets, it gets to be a lot. So bigger team, bigger things. I yeah. love it. Well, thanks for like explaining everything that you do. I was trying to write it all down as you were like going on and I'm like, holy smokes. <laughs> That's a lot. I, I'm just a professional student at this point, really. Like I have so many other internships under my belt that I've kind of crafted into this like portfolio of experience that I feel can progress TK and science and make equitable access for our communities. What's your most favorite you've had, cause you have a lot of internships. What's your most favorite? It doesn't have to be IV working dogs, but like in the past <laughs> scientific, something that you would love to see more native girls doing places where we weren't really in there. Yeah. Cause a, a lot of times in the scientific realm, especially in hydrology and water treatment plants and, and um, there it's like men dominated fields. And yeah. so a lot of times, like when I was sampling heavy metal water, I was on a construction site with a bunch of men and I had a pink helmet and they gave it to me. Um, they, they, they helped me with, they, they put me on a roller. It was all kinds of fun stuff messed up there. Fine grading. Um, but they're men dominated fields. And when we, like, I never see someone who looks like Selena on the job, unless yeah. I'm like looking in the mirror. Right. And yeah. so where was your space? Where was my space? That you want to see more native oh, girls in. You know, quite honestly, and that's probably why I've stuck with it is wildlife biology. I was first a, a wildlife intern in Washington state with a tribe, um, the lower Elwha Klallam tribe. Um, and I just went to there, you know, I was taking a break from school at that point. I was early undergraduate. I approached the wildlife biologist for the tribe and was just like, you know, can I volunteer? I want to make this experience productive while I'm off from school. But she was like really struck by my initiative to just, you know, volunteer. Um, and she had a spot open for like a paid internship. And it was a partnership with AmeriCorps, VISTA, and the Society of Conservation, the SCA, I can't remember, whatever the A is. Association. Student, <laughs> Student Conservation Association. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> We're associates. Um, so yeah, that internship, it was, uh, I was a wildlife tech for six months. So I got to be in all of the elements in Washington state, which is mostly rain <laughs> and <laughs> rain. Yeah. cold rain, windy rain, <laughs> maybe kind of warm rain <laughs> once in a while in the summertime. But I did, I did a lot of like live river otter trapping and I've been able to use that experience on with our dog project um, that I'm on now. And I just did so many other tasks in that role as well. There was some fish tagging, some bird mist netting, a whole bunch of river surveying and hiking. We did a aerial bull elk capture that I assisted with. So like all things wildlife biology and, you know, all of these, yeah, it's totally 
not old people, but, you know, older white professionals that have their master's or doctorates um, running these tribal programs. And I was very much the only tribal student that was, you know, interested and um, could keep going. And so I did. And that experience really opened up doors for me. And it's been very productive for me, like long term as well. So that would be my favorite. That's awesome. For sure. Yeah. And we do need, we do need more, not just women, but natives in general in the, the sciences and the wildlife fields, because we, how do I say we're special without saying we're like super special? We are super special. <laughs> just say it. <laughs> um, we have special knowledge gifted from our ancestors on how to deal and how to handle and how to relate to our animal relatives. And so I think when we go out in the field as uh, researchers and scientists, we just approach it differently because we come with all of those stories. And so for, we come rooted. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so for the, like the otters in our study, when we first sent out all of our maps of habitats to try to find and locate like sample points for this study, that we're doing, uh, it came back saying that there was no otter and mink habitat on the Blackfeet reservation anywhere. And so like that was like, it's hard to read that sentence in email, knowing that there's like the beaver bundle and all of those stories. And then all of these stories that branch off of different societies and ceremonies that show us what animals we have in our area and which ones and how we relate to them. So yeah, it was really cool to see T.E.K. say, for me, an absolute no, that's wrong to NASA-generated scientific information, which which is huge to me, because the NASA-generated scientific information was absolutely not correct in our situation. And we've found lots of uh, mink and otter, mostly, um, I don't know, I feel like we found mostly mink, I feel like, but we've had a few spots where we found otter and it's really hard to find without Selena and the dogs and Michelle and Niall. Like, it's just like looking at dirt, Melissa, and you have to like really look into the dirt particles to see that shimmery little flake of a fish scale or a bone. And so, yeah, I think Michelle once said the, the rate was like, you can take dogs out to find cougar poop and you would only find like two scats and with dogs, you'll find 50. Yeah. So that's the difference. Yeah. Well, just it's, it's a relief to know that there are indigenous women like making their presence known now in science. So I think that what you two are doing is like going to be like making a really like significant path forward. And it's a relief to hear that. Like, it's genuinely a relief. And we are super special. (laughs) Right. Well, and it's kind of, um, it's a new path because I don't know of, and I try to do literature reviews often enough, but there's nobody doing a study like ours right now in specifically how, so it's kind of in different phases. So this first phase, we're looking for mink and otter poop to look at contamination levels. So those all go to the lab. And then fish as well, where we're not finding otters because of bioaccumulation of heavy metals and contaminants. And then we're looking at the impact. And uh, this is why I'm so 
thrilled to have Selena on board is because she's got that environmental background, but then also the food sovereignty interest. And that's what makes this project so unique right now um, compared to everybody else's studies is that it's not as intersectional as yeah. ours. Yeah. And I think our intersectionality is reflective of our TEK that we have. And, and also, you know, a lot of people say it like, oh, it's all related. It's all related. Like we can't look at one and not look at the other, but in this study, it like truly is all related. The contaminants we're finding, the immune health of the animals in that habitat and the susceptibility to getting more chronic diseases. And then also the paralleling impact to cultural practitioners and indigenous women who are harvesting plants and our men who are harvesting, well, men and women who are harvesting animals as subsistence hunters so it's just right that public health aspect of it as well yeah and a lot of people like what do you think about this because a lot of people automatically say well CWD hasn't jumped people yet so we don't have to be worried about it and then I remind them that CWD has jumped to pigs and whatever pigs get people can get pretty easily So what do you think about, like, should we be, do we let our future generations eat plants with CWD in it and not worry? Or am I worrying too much? Or is this a good worry? (laughs) (laughs) No, this, this is the best time to worry. Yeah. Because I mean, even if science, you know, in air quotes is saying that, that that disease hasn't made that jump yet, you know, like proactive observations on the land or I think what has made our people so resilient to environmental change, expecting whatever happens and preparing in the best way that we can. I think I don't know everything about CWD for sure, even as a wildlife student who's taken biology 500, (laughs) whatever course number. Yeah. Um, I, I would definitely say that, you know, like this, the work that we are doing is quite possibly the stuff that will make a difference for our community 20 years from now, 30 years from now, and how we preserve plants and how we treat animals and how we adapt our cultural ways to utilizing those resources in sustainable ways, right? Like, and, or whether we utilize them at all. My favorite story about Indigenous people stopping their cultural ways that preserves the environment is very much macaw whaling. You know, they stopped whaling in the 1920s before the populations had been decimated by commercial whalers. They saw that pressure on the system. They already had protected it within their treaty. And they they knew that, like, something was coming on the horizon. They knew that they had to make that sacrifice and our people are very willing to make those sacrifices. And so knowing, knowing about CWD and the sacrifices that we might have to make is just good science. That to me is the best science because that keeps our, our future generations educated, right? About the sacrifices that we make. One of the comments I got was, well, if we can't get rid of CWD and we can't do anything about it, why monitor it? Why look into it at all? Yeah, I do think that with climate change, disease work, 
especially in that intersection of public health and environmental sustainability is really going to be kind of the crux of problems for society in general. And looking at cultural practices that address diseases long-term instead of very like reactionary ways because that just sounds like some scientist who has completely lost hope, right? Like <laughs> they've been in the suck for too long. I won't say who said that to you. But I mean, you have to monitor these things, right? Because all kinds of diseases, and this is why we have people who study disease work, diseases, because they make jumps that that are predictable in ways that our communities knew about a long, 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 long time ago, right? That's the same way why we would have those TB circles that are closed, you know, like our ancestors knew that that space needed to be kept away from like that. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of like not protected information, but also important information to know and to apply in new ways for environmental monitoring. And I think that indigenous communities specifically have this unique opportunity to rebuild our nations by really knowing how to control that information, protecting our our cultural ways, and then utilizing it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, being scouts we've yeah. we've had a hundred years a of right? we've a had a hundred years of being a scout though now it's time for us to take back that special power and mm-hmm. use it to our benefit that's very cool I had never even thought of the concept of a closed circle TP ring and so for our listeners who aren't aware of that we also map TP rings on our Blackfoot place map and, and national map and a closed circle or a complete circle of rock formations or TP rings or TP circles means that that TP is closed off and someone died in there and so we close the door with rocks to signify that it's a it's a resting place and a place we're not supposed to enter. And so akin to that, this study might have, and that's what I'm kind of picturing at the end with Blackfeet Environment or Pekani Health Lodge Institute, marking out and managing these areas where CWD has been found and kind of like closing it off and letting it rest so that we're not walking in there and then taking out contaminated soil on our shoes or picking those plants and wondering what they're doing. And I also feel like there might be without monitoring, we wouldn't know what contaminants are where and where it's popping up. So there might be one contaminant in particular, say it's flame retardant. That is the immune suppressor that is making these ungulates susceptible. We could ultimately find that in all environments where flame retardant is not found is also where CWD is not found. So that's another branch off point for other scientists or for this study to continue. But then I also see it working in terms of management, like people being able to know where it's at and then being able to know where to safely pick. And then also knowing where the CWD is found But then also, okay, so if we know where the contaminants are and where CWD is being found, then we can also start to look at how to clean it up, experimenting with different things. So if this 
section of the study has A, B, C, but lacks D and still has CWD susceptibility, um, and it's in the plants, it's in the soil, and it's found in the water, how do we approach cleaning that up? And we can't, we can't confidently or um, competently clean up any one of these habitats without knowing exactly all that information. And so this information is like the baseline study of what's going on here and where is it at? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any, anybody learns as a baby to just watch, right? Like that's how you learn how to talk. You observe people talking around you, what their, what their mouth does, what their hands are doing even. And so I think it's important for scientists to learn again, how to just observe Right. Because a lot of the environmental processes that science likes to try to fix, the environment will fix on its own. Right. And that's that's the same for the human body. Right. Like we you don't have to take antibiotics for an ear infection. Your body has mechanisms to take care of that and still recover and be okay. Not that not anybody (laughs) should go and take antibiotics. There are you know, circumstances where we do need science, right? But infusing that same like knowledge of like, hey, wait, let's take a step back. And maybe some of these environmental processes where our, you know, the land is stressed. Sometimes when you're stressed, you just need a break, right? Like finding, facilitating a way for the land to have a break is I think going to be a powerful way for food sovereignty to make a comeback because it's not going to, you know, see all of the debris and garbage and the land that is putting those PCBs into our waterways and microplastics into our Buffalo, you know, that we hear our traditional women who do the butchering, like, no, we should not be eating this because of these microplastics, because of this. And that's important knowledge because we can't do anything about what the buffalo are eating, right? Like Mm -hmm. they have freedom of choice, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we can facilitate that like healthy overall picture for them that helps us as well. Mm -hmm. And this study and this organization and all the work that we do is all a result of a dream had a long time ago about Sawita Peaks or water people. And that brings me to, to close our conversation today, a dream that many tail feathers had um, in the Shoto area about he burnt down a, a, a piskin because he had a dream that the buffalo, the bison, or any were being exploited and not treated well. That violates our relationship and our, our responsibility towards this nation of beings. And so he burnt down the piskin to tell everybody in our community that we weren't doing things correctly. And I think what many tail feathers was dreaming of was, was the future scenario of habitat and range that we have here in, in current day Montana being completely unacceptable for bison to live in the way that they were supposed to live. And so currently right now they're all in fences like cows and they don't have that range of being able to run across the prairie for miles and miles at a time or the ability to 
accurately doctor themselves with accessibility towards the medicinal plants that they need to eat. And so one of the reasons is that maybe our deer, elk and moose, as well as our bison eventually can't find access to the wild plants that they know that heal them. Now think of your dog. And when your dog has a tummy ache, it goes to the alley and it eats that long blade green grass to help puke up what's not making its stomach feel better. And so similarly, our ungulates and our bison need access to those medicinal plants as well. So hopefully this helps ensure that Blackfoot women and Indigenous women, as well as Buffalo Nation and Ungulate Nation people (laughs) have access to the medicinal plants that they need. Hey, thanks for checking out the Indigenous Vision podcast brought to you by Indigenous Vision. We're an educational nonprofit based in Montana and Arizona. To learn more about CWD, check out our website, indigenousvision.org. If you're listening on any major platform, give us a follow, give us a like and share this episode. And why not leave a review on how you found us, where you're from and who you are? We would love to know that. Thanks again for listening. Check out our website, indigenousvision.org.